Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. Thanks for tuning in. I'm glad to be sharing the next few minutes with you today. I'm all about you thriving in life and growing in your relationship with Jesus. At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say that we are learning how to live as God's people, reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. Today, we're going to continue our series from the teaching of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' teaching that calls the Christian to a holy life, and we're finally getting into chapter 6 this week. The Romans were especially fond of Greek culture, especially after the conquests of the much of the modern-day Greece, and Greek imports became all the rage among the upper-class Romans, And they loved Greek marble sculptures. That was something they highly sought after. That was just a treasure of the Greek society. And uh, because many of the sculptures were already very old, many of them several hundred years old, many of them were damaged. Traders discovered that if they placed wax in the damaged parts of the sculptures, well, they looked like new. But of course, over time, the wax would harden and would change color. And thereby, when it changed color and hardened and looked different, it would expose the inauthentic parts of the sculptures. So after a while, the vendors need a way to differentiate their complete works from those that were held together with wax. And to do this, they well, they would mark undamaged statues with a word in Latin. Well, sign would be the first part, which means without, and Sarah, which is the second part, meaning wax. Sign Sarah, or what we might call sincere, without wax. Well, wax is no longer the cover-up of our times, but chasing the best camera angle, editing photos to perfection, posting only amazing experiences, staging bigger and bigger reveals and proposals and invitations to the school dance... We're as good as ever at painting a picture of ourselves that we think is better than reality. Reality, truly, reality is always better than make-believe, than that artificial foot we can put forward. One of the greatest dangers we faced is that the idea of that we can find satisfaction when we finally convince those around us, and even ourselves, that we are more accomplished and more happy than we really are. It is dangerous when we confuse outward appearance and even even outward transformation, we confuse that with the condition of our interior life, our heart. God wants outward obedience, so don't get me wrong there, but the outward obedience that God wants comes from a healthy soul, a healthy heart. And so, the big idea I want you to take today as we read our text is this— Real life and real faith can be yours when you humbly seek Jesus and put aside the desire for approval from all others. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shifts his teaching to contrast the importance of outward appearance versus the state of your heart. So let's go ahead and read our text today. And it's a little bit of a strange text because we're going to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump and read Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. And we'll come back to what's in the middle next week when Jesus focuses in on prayer. 
But for now, let's go ahead and read. And I think you'll see why we add this extra part in 16 and 18. Jesus says this in verse 1, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now we're going to jump down to verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I think you see the pattern there. That's why we add in that third part. And so we're going to talk about these three categories here, giving, prayer, and fasting. But even more so, giving, prayer, and fasting are call to address something very different, our heart. Jesus expects us to do these three activities. I want to point that out right away. Each time he addresses these topics, he doesn't say if you give or if you pray or if you fast. Jesus says when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. These are ancient religious practices that are God-given. They have the ability, when you do them rightly, to tune your heart to the kingdom of God. And you know, when you do them incorrectly, and this is what Jesus is warning against here, they have the ability to harm you. Each discipline can draw you closer to God and how you were made to be, or they can warp you into a vanity. Now, the question here is, who are you doing them for? Are you doing them for others? That's what we hear most often when we read this text. Are you doing it so others can see? But I think we can also do it for ourselves so that we can see. And that's not a healthy audience either, just yourself. I'm really good at fooling myself, so I can't do it for an audience of me. The person we really should be doing it for is God. So let's take a moment and talk about all three of these disciplines. Let's start with the first one, giving or almsgiving. And I'll admit, Jesus' teaching here, if you really look carefully, can be a little bit frustrating. In the same sermon... Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses earlier, Jesus spoke these words. And I want you to hear these because it almost sounds like he's contradicting himself. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
Yeah, he just said, do this so that people can see and glorify God. And that seems so very different from what we've read all through our text today, but especially in Matthew 6, 1, where it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Oh, so which one is it? Shine your good deeds so others can see, or be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Which one is it? Come on, Jesus. And let me say this, when Jesus calls you to let your light shine, he is speaking against fear, fear that might keep you from sharing the gospel. And when he tells us to hide our righteousness, he's speaking against something else, vanity. And vanity is very much at work among the religious experts of Jesus' day. See, in the time of Jesus, Giving one's finances to help the poor was an important part of Jewish life. Every synagogue had a special designated box, the contents of which were dedicated to the poor. The temple in Jerusalem had a particular box at its entrance at the right side so you could place your offering in with your right hand. That's why it's saying right, don't give with your right so your left doesn't know. All gifts that were placed in the box in the temple and in the synagogue were for the poor. Especially in the temple, whenever you dropped into that box, trumpets and fanfare were sounded every single time a gift was placed in. And in the synagogues, when large gifts were given, they were celebrated with fanfare. It was a triumph. Now, I want you to hear this. Jesus never says there's anything wrong with giving. Okay, and I think we could all agree with that, especially to the poor. I also want to be clear that he says there's nothing wrong with being acknowledged for a gift. It's the reason that you give that matters. John Stott writes this. He says, The truly merciful do not call attention to their acts of mercy. What he's getting at is that the truly merciful, those who are wanting to give, they don't do it for the recognition. They might get recognized. That's okay. But we don't do it just for the adulation. And I want to add a word about giving. I know it's a sensitive issue in our culture because money is a very private thing. And I, I strongly dislike talking about giving as a pastor because our, our culture has in it a stereotype that all pastors and churches do is ask for money. And yet part of the Christian life is, is giving, right? Here's one thing I do know. God can do mighty works when we are real and vulnerable with Him. And for many of us, money is an area where we're sensitive because it's a private part of our culture. It's where we feel tremendous ownership and possession. This is mine. And so it's in giving that we can practice surrender to God. And giving should not be done because you feel pressured by your pastor. I, I certainly never want you to feel that. And it shouldn't be done because you feel pressured by family or by society. At its heart, giving should be an act of obedience to God. And when you give, it should be seen as an opportunity to worship God, to show gratitude to God, to honor God, to serve God. If you're giving for any other reason, wait. Wait until you can give as worship to the Lord. Here's a secret. God doesn't need our money, but he does desire us to partner with him. And giving is a way he invites us to partner with him in serving the kingdom. I'll say this. When Jesus talks about 
giving, almsgiving to the poor. He's addressing ministry to our neighbor. He's not saying don't do it. He's saying make sure when you do it, you do it for the Lord out of concern for your neighbor. He's pressing the question, do we give to be recognized? Do we give so we feel better? Or do we give because we love God? The second issue that Jesus addresses is prayer. And devout Jews, they pray three times a day, especially in Jesus's day. And these prayers were often done in public. You know, we have a practice of praying. And and if you're at our church in person, or if you're familiar with a lot of Protestant churches, when we pray, you know, we pray with our heads bowed or their eyes closed or their hands folded together. Uh, and in Jesus's day, <laughs> to pray meant you stood up, you had your arms stretched out wide on either side of you, you had your the palms of your hands turned upward, and you prayed looking up to heaven with your eyes open. It's about as opposite from our own practice as you can get. Very uncomfortable, right? And that prayer there was often done in public among many people. So much like his teaching on giving and fasting, Jesus addresses who you're concerned about when you practice prayer. Who are you worried about? Are you worried about the audience who's watching? (laughs) I think we would be if we all had to pray with our eyes open. You know, more often today, I find people who are unwilling to pray rather than to pray out in front of everybody, but it's still the same issue. They're concerned. They won't say the right words or they'll mess up, that they'll get embarrassed, that they'll feel funny in front of everybody. It's about praying in public. Let me tell you this, God will never embarrass you and he is the one you're praying to. Prayer ultimately addresses our relationship with God. It's about seeking Him and depending upon Him. And so when Jesus addresses prayer, yeah, He says pray in private, but what He's really talking about is who are you seeking? What are you seeking? Are you seeking the Lord or approval of others? And then He talks about fasting. And that's fasting that Jesus talks about is more than just a current diet trend that's running through our culture right now with intermittent fasting. See, fasting has long been a part of the Jewish faith. It's long been a part of the Christian faith. You know, Pharisees in the time of Jesus, they fasted two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays, all the time they did this. And that fast was typically no food from sunrise till sunset. Sometimes they'd do it longer than that. And they often, that often when they abstain from food, they would also accompany that with wearing sackcloth and covering their faces with ashes so that people could know that they were in a time of fasting. It was very public. Look at me. But that's, they were missing the point. See, fasting when Jesus talks about deals with disciplining yourself and in disciplining yourself, submitting to God. So Jesus talks about giving and prayer and fasting. And these are topics he will visit over and over and over. I'd remind you of another teaching of Jesus. Uh, We call it the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in it, there's a Pharisee who prays, and his prayer is, I would argue, a very bad prayer. It's very poorly done, because their prayer is more about himself, 
Uh, in fact, he, he praises his ability to fast and to give. And, and so when you put it together, all three of these activities are rolled into this little parable about prayer and, and giving and fasting. And let me, let me read the text for you. It's from Luke chapter 18, verses 11 through 14. And it goes like this. The Pharisee stood him by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. And he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves, they'll be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. (laughs) Andrew Murray writes these words, There is no pride so dangerous, so subtle, and so insidious as the pride of holiness. Well, we got to be careful. Our theme this year is holiness, right? We want to be a holy people, and yet a pride can come out in holiness. We don't practice holiness so that others are impressed. Practice holiness because we want to honor God. We want to obey God. We want to please Him. Three ideas that I want you to ponder when you think about Jesus' teaching on giving and fasting and prayer. And the first one is this. Beware. Earthly approval masks the human heart. Seeking earthly approval will mask the human heart. James Bryant Smith, when he's writing about this passage of Jesus, talking about uh, giving and prayer and fasting, he describes the sin of vainglory. And in it, he says, it hides behind virtue. Vainglory wants others to know your accomplishments, and vainglory also wants to keep others from knowing your weaknesses. So it wants to put on a show and it wants to hide. And when you become concerned about what people see and what they don't see, you end up putting a mask over you, your heart and you hide. And when you hide long enough, you can even convince yourself that that mask is actually reality. I'm a good person because I really care about those who do not have the privileges that I do. I'm, I'm a really good person because I pray and I attend church and I do the right religious things. I, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. And so we put on this mask, but it's not the act of giving or prayer or fasting or being in public or even in private that matters to Jesus. It's the condition of your heart that creates a blessing or a hindrance in your life. Jesus tells us to practice these things in hidden and in a humble way, because the moment human approval enters the equation... We start to put our best foot forward and hide our flaws. We mask the reality of our heart. And you and I cannot afford to mask up our hearts, to hide our hearts. Eternity is at stake. Beware. Second point I want you to consider is to consider the approval. (laughs) It's this. The approval you seek will form your life. The approval that you seek, that you desire, that you want, will shape your life. 
Again, James Bryant Smith reminds us that this world spins us a false narrative, and that false narrative is simply this. We often tell ourselves, my value is determined by your assessment. I am worth as much as what others think of me. And so, in an effort to be loved, to be seen as worthwhile and valuable, we fall into the trap of seeking approval from everyone but God. And when we tell ourselves we're seeking God's approval, we just want to feel good ourselves or we want others to say, yeah, you've done enough to be approved of by God. But here's the problem. What do people judge? They judge what they see, which boils down to really three categories. People judge your appearance, your production, and your performance. Think about it for a while. Is there's a real limitation to what we can honestly see. We see outward appearance, we see what we can produce, and we see how people perform. You know, the internet is a wonderful tool. I think it's, I, I really enjoy the internet. It, it connects us like never before, and it brings information to us like never before. And it's accessible to more and more people than ever. And the internet has the ability, especially through social media, to amplify, like never before, your appearance, what you produce, and how you perform. And there's a whole bunch of us that are just getting sick on, and and we're getting obsessed with, do I look right? Do people see that I have produced enough? Do people see that my life is a, a good enough performance to be excited about? You know, those three categories, I keep repeating them, they're not bad. Appearance, production, and performance, we want to do those well. But those three things are not your life, and they are not your worth. In the end, as Jesus addresses giving and prayer and fasting, he contrasts two kinds of righteousness. I think this will help us to understand. The approval that we seek forms your life. Because there's two kinds of righteousness that he contrasts. There's two different shapes that our life can take. And in this instance, when I speak of righteousness, I want to be clear here. I don't mean salvation that Jesus does for us on the cross, that he's purchased for us on the cross. When I talk about righteousness in this case, it's it's our holy living. The, the way that we live that pleases God, just holy living. And so, there's two types that he's contrasting here. And I'd like to call them... Uh, manufactured righteousness, which is really counterfeit, fake righteousness, and real, authentic righteousness. And when you look through these three teachings he gives, manufactured righteousness, that counterfeit righteousness, it's uh, public, where real righteousness is very private. Manufactured righteousness is built on outward visible factors like performance and appearance and production. But real righteousness is built on inward inward and especially invisible factors. The, the particular invisible factors are actually outside of us because it's that we're made in the image of God, we're loved by Jesus, we're filled by the Holy Spirit. That righteousness comes from God, right? And then maybe there's some other inward invisible factors that people don't usually see very well, which is humbleness and submission and obedience to God. Manufactured righteousness, counterfeit righteousness, uh, its reward is immediate, but very limited. 
As Jesus says over and over, their reward is the recognition they get from others right now, but that's it. Whereas real righteousness, the reward is immediate, because God does see now, but it's also everlasting. It's seen by God in heaven right now, and we look forward to the promise of heaven. With counterfeit righteousness, the result is we measure our goodness by our peers, and our peers are very flawed. The people around us are very flawed because we're all sinners. We're not actually good at measuring one another. And the result in real righteousness, or why why it's real righteousness, I should say, is because we measure our worth by God, who is perfect, and He can see every part of our character and our condition. He knows the flaws we have, and he's real about them, and he has supplied his son Jesus on the cross for us to pay for our sins. Last point. Serve an audience of one. There's an old Puritan saying that says this, live for an audience of one. If you want to know yourself, if you want to be real, if you want to be sincere without wax, (laughs) it's probably not you were thinking today, but if you want to be real, focus on God as the audience you serve. I've got an uncle I love very much. His name is Steve, Uncle Steve. He's a businessman. And as long as I've known him, which is my whole life, he's been a man of few words. He's happy to talk about sports. He's happy to talk about business. That's about it. That's okay. When I entered ministry, now 20 years ago, I can't hardly believe that, he made a point every time he saw me, especially when we would say goodbye, he would shake my hand. He would say, hey, remember the customer. And you know what? That's fantastic advice. Advice. It's it's so very important for success in any career. Uh, But after a while, his words started to bother me. And I, because I knew, you know, as a pastor, as someone in ministry, our society might say the customer's already always right. But I know if we are allowed to be in charge, we will not naturally choose the things of God. And so at church, where the people are always right and they're always pleased, it's going to be pretty dysfunctional. And, and that, it's not good as a pastor to, to let your congregation simply be the customers. So one year, at the end of a family picnic, Uncle Steve shook my hand and he said, hey, remember the customer. And then I kind of said, you, you know... I'm not sure that always works in ministry. I should please God and and not just every human opinion that gets thrown my way. And my uncle smiled and he looked at me for a minute. And then he said, I never said please everyone. And I never told you who your customer is. You're allowed to have just one customer. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Serve an audience of one. Who is it that you're trying to please? I challenge you, make a list, be thorough, name names if you have to. It might be your kids, your neighbors, your siblings, spouses, bosses, co-workers, parents, employees, even strangers. Put the names down. It's good to serve them all well. But at the end of the day, you need to be able to say, 
I serve one holy God. And yes, he's a trinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but he is one. And when the rubber hits the road, he is first and he is final. And he is the audience I live for. And that's what Jesus is calling for in our text today. Can you say, I serve an audience of one? Let's pray. Lord, I confess, it's all too easy to seek the approval and the admiration of others even just to seek my own approval, please myself. But right now I pray for all who are listening that you would begin to break the chains of pleasing others, that you would root out vainglory from me and from all of us. Lord, each day help us to serve you because you are our audience of one. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.